The Sport Industry Access Podcast, episode 162. What core skills do you need to work in sponsorship at a football club? Welcome to another episode of the Sport Industry Access Podcast. I'm your host, Ed Bowers. As always, my goal each week is to provide you a special guest who is a sports expert in a specific field in the sports industry, especially if you have an interest in pursuing a career in sponsorship. I hope today's episode can be useful to you with regards to your interests and needs. Now, getting back to today's show, this week's special guest is Jim Gooley. Jim has a very fascinating career journey with regards to the football industry. Jim is a football business development consultant and has over 30 years of experience in the football industry where he specialises in helping football franchises work effectively as a club with the application of sponsorship. For example, Jim was the director of sales at Sky Blue and the vice president of operations at New Jersey Wildcats. For that reason, it's such a privilege to have Jim as a special guest on the show. And that's when today's episode, Jim will share with you his football career journey and explain the core skills you need to work in sponsorship at a football club. Jim, it's such a pleasure speaking to you today. Please share to the audience your sports career journey. Well, thanks, Ed. Thanks for having me. And uh, I'm happy and honored to, to be here. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm Jim Gooley. Uh, am I important? Am I special? Uh, no, <laughs> but I'm in my, uh, my mid-60s. Um, I've been a footballer since I was maybe 12 or 13, which t- in today's standards is a, kind of a late start. Uh, but in the United States in the 1960s and 70s, soccer was something that urban immigrants and ethnic groups played in, in, in cities. And in New Jersey... Uh, we, of course, being so close to the Statue of Liberty, had so many mixed communities, and and uh, and soccer became a, uh, a sport uh, that young men played because their dads played in their countries or their grandfathers played in the countries, and they brought it here. Uh, my journey with women's football actually began back then. It was in the 1970s. I was in high school, and in the States, high schools are really mini sports clubs. You walk in any high school in America, the first thing you'll see are trophies. You'll see sports trophies walking in right by the front offices. And you wonder, is this a sports club or is this a, a, a you know, learning institution? In any case, I really was intrigued by the game. And I loved the geometry of the ball, the geometry of the field. And I said, this is, this is something I could, I could, I could you know, understand and maybe enjoy. So when I was in high school, that's when I started to play. The... Uh, early 1970s, something was going on in the United States that uh, it was the midst of what we call the sexual revolution, where uh, females were, were empowering themselves to, to, to speak up and, and, and give themselves a, a better life, because we had in the 1940s and 50s this, what we called the Betty Crocker days. Betty Crocker is a brand of cake mix, and, 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 and you know, mothers and wives and, and sisters and daughters were all 
house housewives and house people, and the man went out and did this, and and the, and the roles were very uh, staid but clear cut. And then someone said, "Hey, wait a minute! You know, we just gone through the '60s, and that was an ama- amazing time for America and, and the world, and and difficult and amazing at the same time." And women said, "You know what? You know, hear me." With that said, one morning, uh, we're I'm practicing with my high school team. It was August, weeks before the school season started, and the coach said, "Gentlemen, let's come together." Yeah, coach, what's up? He said, "This is Diane." She's trying out just like you. And we stood motionless. We, st- we stood motionless and uh, looked at her and looked at the coach. And he reiterated, she's trying out just like you. And good luck to you all. Coach walks away. And we're doing some stretching. And, and I said, Diane, she was a friend of mine. I said, Diane, what are you doing? She says, well, I'm, 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 I'm trying out. I, I, I actually asked why. There was no girls football in America anywhere. It's like, why? And very simply, she looked at me in a very soft voice. She said, I just want to play. And we looked at each other and we were stuck because we didn't want to make hay. You know, we, we said, hold it here. We're trying out too. We didn't want to be the, you know, sister. So she, she worked very hard for three days. And she took herself off. She, she, the coach brought us all together again. She says, Diane has something to say. She said, thank you. With a tear in her eye, she said, I can't keep up. I can't do this. But thank you. And she walked away. And we, of course, were all relieved. But I thought, she just loves the game I love. And I put it aside, nothing else. We were all cavemen back then, and, and, and some of us still are today, but we were cavemen back then. And turn the page, years later, I married, I'm, you know, a kid on the way, bought a house in a small suburban town. And I said, well, I really love this game. I've been playing it for a couple of years. Not at a great level, but a fun level. And I'd like to coach. And I walked into a club, the local club. And I said to the registrar, her name was Phyllis, I said, my name is Jim, and I'd like to possibly coach kids. And she said, well, what's your background? I said, well, I played in high school. I played club. I started playing college, but my studies got in the way, blah, blah, blah. And she said, well, what would you like to coach, boys or girls? And I said, well, what's the difference? And she looked at me with this, what? Like I was from Mars. And I, I, I innocently, I, I, there was no difference. And from that moment on, I've just coached and worked with girls and women's teams up, up until this day. Jim, I find this story really interesting with regards to your sort of development with the Gazia history, but just going back before talking about women's football in general, you talked about where you were brought up, you had different ethnic groups, like with regards to being integrated in sport. That's very similar to Europe, like they use football as an identity. But really quickly, on an interest note, how did soccer compete with the other major sports in the USA? Like... You know, American football, baseball, basketball, going back in time in those sort of 1970s period, out of interest. Yes, yeah, 1970s. Great question, Ed. Um, yeah, we were laughed at. <laughs> you know, go, going back to that high school story, the American football teammate, uh, classmates of mine were practicing right next to us. And these, these 100, you know, guys in pads and helmets, you know, doing marine core drill 
work next to us. They were loud and, uh, and whistles, but they were looking at us. We, we wore shorts and knee socks, and we had long hair. So they, they, you know, they of course, would, you know, as, you know, bully as we were back then, they, they, they laughed at They left at the soccer players, and I would, I would have to take that all day. In school, you know, a soccer player, you know, and they get pushed in the back, and you know, excuse me, but you know, we didn't know it back then. But when you play soccer, God lets you keep your brain, as opposed to as opposed to now. But more importantly, when Diane walked off the field, she wasn't alone. At that time in America, a million other young girls were doing the exact same thing, and. It was their own movement, but it was their own desire and their own uh, uh, right, of course, to, to do what we did. Uh, yes, soccer was a like a third-tier sport. There was no soccer on television. You know, you've got a grainy picture on a Saturday morning, soccer made in Germany. There was a, like, a little special. And so, oh, yeah, they're, they're playing this. Some, and you heard about the World Cup and that there are soccer nations. But, you know, this certainly wasn't visible at all. Where I, where I lived, and, and of course in most of America. <clears throat> in 1972, the President, uh, Nixon, to his credit, signed a law, and it was called Title IX, you know, I-X, Roman numerals. Title IX says, if you give a young man a scholarship or an economic advantage in, in school because he plays a sport, you must find a girl and give, it her, give her the same thing. So it's even Stephen, yep. or even Stephanie, if it's, yeah. you know, no, how you look at it. Yeah. So what happened was there was a, there was a, there was a title shift in, in motivations for college. And from that, generation after generation, the one million young Mia Hams of the world had stepped on the field all over the country. They got to college because of it. And what popped out of all of that were those, those grand dams of, of, of the game in the 90s which began the dynasty in the States for women. And just going back to your career now, when was the breakthrough moment when you thought, right, with regards to Diane's story, I'm going to commit to work in the football industry? Could you just go through your sort of sales background, which sort of led you into the football industry naturally? Uh, c- certainly. My, my, uh, my formal training is electronic engineering, <laughs> of all things. Uh, I went to a local county college, a small school, then I switched over to Rutgers University. And electronics were big back in the 1970s into the 80s. And, of course, we were at the forefront of this great wave of technological revolution. And I worked for Eastman Kodak Company as an imaging specialist in New York for 20 years, a little over 20 years. And, you know, my job was to make sure that Cindy Crawford's lips... Uh, uh, a lipstick was remarkable red number 20 made it to the magazine so when people picked up the magazine they saw that yeah remarkable red red number 20 is is my look I'm gonna go buy some that's the whole deal the color train and all of that is very difficult very complicated quite electronic and quite uh, also uh, analog in in, in when you get to the printing press but that was my job for Kodak and I you know thought I did it very well I stayed with them for a while I then worked, Kodak shrunk quite quickly because the whole company didn't become quite digital quickly or at all. And they said, thank you, Jim, here's a package. It was shaped like a boot, but it was, it was a package here, go. 
I said, okay. And 15,000 people on that particular day left the company. And I just stepped over and worked for Nikon selling microscopes to big institutions. What that, that all did was it gave me the skills to, uh, to understand a client or a customer's need and provide to them solutions with my products and services. That's it. The, the big you know, question is being smart enough or, or astute enough to learn what their need is, find out about their business, know anything you can so you're not a dope walking in. You're not just a salesman. You are actually being hired by that company to provide solutions on a regular basis. So I always looked at myself as an employee of the company that prints Sports Illustrated and Cosmo and Life and all the, all the big magazines and representing them to my company's McCulloch or Nikon. That's really where I developed my, my uh, background in identifying need and then selling to that need. Hope the listeners, I hope you listened to that very carefully because honestly, this is what I'm learning a lot from this man. And before we talk about today's topic, Jim, how have you seen the women's game develop from the 1970s to where it is today? And if you don't mind, I'd love you, your honest perspective of the positives and then the second part where there needs to be more development. Certainly, certainly, Ed. Um, the, uh, the big motivator, in this, and I'll, I'm going to speak from the United States point of view. That's my experience, and that's, you know, where people turn to us and say, well, what did they do over there? To train coaches and to train trainers in, in these certain fashions. And we developed the, the Olympic Development Program, o, you know, ODP, um, to identify, to ID young talent and develop them. And we've created now this system of academies, which is brilliant for both boys and girls all over the country, to produce these, these, these great teams. I'm specifically talking about the women's side. The men's side uh, has not had that same curve. And we don't need to go into reasons why right now, but I do have my theory. In any case, what we were able to produce, because we cheer for women on the field in our country quite, quite broadly, we have no problem, no issue cheering for her. She's not taking anything away from us. The caveman stepped aside years ago. And because we cheer for her, she gets it, she takes it with her, and she returns it in love and performance. And that's what you see when you see a Megan Rapinoe you know, doing that, that move she does, that brilliant, look what, look what I've done. It's really what she's saying is look what we've all done. And with that said, we, by the numbers and by the competition to get into college and by the competition to be better and giving her what she needs, giving her the field space, giving her the training, and she's done it all. You know, I don't, I, and again, I don't speak for her either. But in the United States, culturally, we have no issue cheering for her. That is, I think, the, the, the main difference between what we've been able to produce in the USA and in Canada and in England and in Germany and in France and in the Scandinavian countries and Australia and New Zealand. They cheer for women. That's simple. Absolutely. And to be honest, I'm going to share a story now of how we got connected. We're actually recording this in Athens with regards to the uh, Women's Athens Football Summit. And I literally got off the plane at eight in the morning. I got picked up by Maris and Jim and Agaleos and we went straight to a women's game. And I kid you not, I was with Jim on this sort of rugged pitch, if that's a, an, a polite way of putting it. Spartan. And... Uh, it, it did have a fantastic backdrop of some mounding views, but I had the privilege of a, literally a VIP 
uh, sponsorship session during that whole first half, plus watching a wonder goal in the second half. But Jim just literally very kindly explained his career of the impact of sponsorship. And it really does relate to today's podcast topic now, Jim. What core skills do you need to work in sponsorship, especially when working with football clubs? The, uh, Ed, the, the, the key is, as I said before, being able to identify the need uh, for both your, t- your club, your team, and looking at, because of my, my, my work with Kodak and Nikon, um, targeting companies, uh, corporations, uh, concerns, whatever it might be, who might have a need that my product or service could fulfill. It's, it's really that simple. I did the same thing with film and proofing and plates and micro, microscopes and over the years. It's the same concept. And not being shy, you have to have the ability to, to, to walk in and, and be told no every now and then, but, but to, to walk in prepared, knowing their business. Um, the difficult issue, and, and we still have it to this day, even, even in the States at, at, at all levels, when you walk into a, let's say, a... Um, uh, a hospital group, uh, and you, I, you, you represent a women's football team, and you say, I represent Sky Blue, or the Wildcats, or Central Jersey Splash, or whomever it might be, and they look at you and say, well, isn't that nice? You're doing something nice for women. Or they look at you and they say, well, here's an opportunity for us. Well, they don't know that yet. They, they won't, and because it's, it's, this is new still. My job I felt, of course, I sit down with the general managers, the owners, the coaches, whatever, and, we say, and I said, what do you guys need? I need a training grounds. Okay. I need somebody to pay for the training grounds. I need uniforms. I need somebody to pay for the uniforms. I need a bus to the away game. I need, I need insurance for the team. Somebody said, and you sit down and say, okay, fine, this is going to cost us 50000 100000 150000 U.S. To, to run this team. I'm, 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 this is not a pro team yet. So I sit down and say, okay, fine. I know what you really represent, you are 20,000, 30,000 soccer moms. When I look at the team, I look at the Wildcats, and I say, you are really representative of 30,000, because we're the conduit to soccer mom. Soccer moms and their daughters and their families turn to us for entertainment or for inspiration or, uh, or, or knowledge or tra- whatever it might be. They respect and, and, and what we've done and they respect the women on the field. And what they say and do is important to them. So with that said, I walk into the biggest hospital group in, in the land, in the region. And I sit down and I say, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to give me $100,000 a year and here's why. If they steer me to the community social requirement or the community service requirement office which is the office that has some money to do some nice things in the community you failed and that's been my biggest challenge is getting them to realize that we are an entertainment source we're a billboard for their brand if I'm walked into the advertising department ta-da you could just just ring the bell now it's just a question of justification and getting a return the biggest issue you have, the biggest problem you will have, or the biggest challenge, I'm sorry, you will have, is making sure that the return, it's called stewardship. They've given you $100,000, and they put their name on your chest. 
And they're looking at you and saying, okay, we could have put that 100000 into the newspaper advertising or radio advertising saying, come to our hospital when you're hurt. Have your babies at our hospital, whatever it may be. Or, which will, will have a certain impact and a certain return, and this, which is measurable, fine. But those messages go out to the masses. And a small percentage of those masses will identify with that and, res- and respond, and, and, and mom will make that healthcare decision and take their daughter or the son to that hospital. Or they'll look at Christy Rampone or Kelly O'Hara or Megan Rapinoe or whoever it might be and say, where did she go to get her ACL repaired? Okay, the hospital looks at that and says, that's it, that's it. And I say, soccer moms will throw their daughters at you if she, that star, got repaired by that orthopedic surgeon. With regards to what you're saying, there's one concept you kept on saying to me about, it's all about getting people on that fridge could you just explain everything you said but in a <laughs> in this sort of fun example because i'm good with metaphors and sometimes people can picture it about this term that the whole point by connecting with the fans with regards to the sponsorship is putting that fridge magnet on the fridge could you just explain that to me yeah yeah that's that that's the concept the, yeah yes ed the the the, the idea when i mentioned to you yesterday you're on the refrigerator is the phrase i use when i'm sitting in the boardroom with a, a doctor's group or a hospital and their, their number one need or their desire, their goal is to be able to be in the, have the mindset of mom whenever there's a healthcare need, whatever it might be, whether it doesn't have to be a sports injury, it could be absolutely anything. Juniors uh, or, 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 or your daughter is hurt or your husband needs help or you need help, whatever. She turns to the refrigerator because in America on that metal refrigerator, on, the, on that fridge are magnets and the magnets have the schedule of your favorite sports team certainly, but they also have all the emergency contact numbers, the schedule for the family for the week. And, you know, all the notes that mom's got for the kids because we're very busy these days and, you know, that's where everyone goes. That's the file that they access. And when I tell this to doctors and the healthcare providers, I said, you're on the fridge of 20 or 30,000 soccer moms. So it's, it's both literal and figure, figurative. Y- yes, we'll, we can have a magnet on there with a team and the schedule and your name and your doctor's name, but spiritually, you, you're in her head already because she already knows she'll turn to you because she's now, I've got an avenue for care for my daughter because that player trusts you. And women are really loyal when they can trust you. And they look for that trust. And, and, and I've, I've said this exact same thing when I'm talking about other sports in, in, in America. We drive cars in a circle really well to the point where we have these great, great tracks and arenas all over the country where men and some women get into these cars and drive fast and go nowhere for hours. On their chest are chemical companies there was a guy, it's Jeff Gordon, years ago. You know, he had DuPont on his chest. Who cheers for a chemical company? So, so I, I liken that when I'm having some, you know, when I'm explaining things to some people who don't know what this really means. You put, you know, New Jersey Healthcare, New Jersey Health or Doctors of the Year on the chest of these players, it's the same thing. It's that visceral, it's that emotional, it's that spiritual connection that they are cheering for her. And what do you know, I can, I can, they can cheer for my daughter as well. And it's that connection, it's that level of trust 
that is the secret. Jim, I find this really interesting with the fridge concept. It always makes me smile and it makes, for me, a lot more sense. Now, just going back to your career now, what have you learned the most from your career journey looking back right now? Uh, yeah, that's a, great, that's a great question, Ed. Probably, the, the first, first of all, let me just say, I, I don't speak for women. I, don't, I, I, I cheer for them, certainly, but I don't, I'm not their voice. Uh, what I've learned in, in this game, yes, I'm, this is the game I love. I love watching the, the end result, the success, the joy, when uh, Carly Lloyd, for instance, in 2015, scored that third goal in the 16th minute of the World Cup final against Japan. Now, Carly played for us in New Jersey, you know, for years. I knew what was in her head during that game. I knew how mad she was that she wasn't playing as much as she wanted in that particular World Cup, and even in this one. But she was released in the final. And I knew, I said, I said to my friend, okay, she's on the field, bam, watch her go. Just watch, because she's mad. And she insanely took over and was the most creative, most um, uh, energetic player. And it's funny, because weeks after that particular World Cup, they go to the White House, and President Barack Obama honors the team. And he walks in on his busy schedule. He's only going to be there for five minutes. He comes in, the team, for the, for the photo. And he said to Carly and the team, he says, I had just gotten my beer and popcorn and sat down, and the game was over. What the joy I got personally from watching that and cheering for her, as we've done since she was 15 or 16 years old, playing for the Central Jersey Splash uh, back in 1999, uh, knowing that and, and, and seeing that, that's... That's the joy I get. And that little, I look at the World Cup and I see maybe there's a little piece of plastic on the bottom that kind of belongs to me and the people I work with here in New Jersey. But, uh, but what I've learned mostly about, about successes and, the, and, and failures and the different levels of success, even in the United States, is who's running the show in your particular franchise and your particular team, your group, whether it's minor league or, or professional. If your um, front office is filled with or run by former players and coaches. They've got a different mindset than if your front office was run by business executives, salespeople, and uh, people who are, let's say, in the entertainment industry or the advertising world. Those are the people you want selling for you. Those are the people you want to go into the board office and say, you're going to give me $100,000 a year, and here's why. And I know what your requirements are. I know what your, your bottom line is. I know what your profit margins are. I know that you're number two in your region, and you want to be number one. I see the advertising you do, and I see where you put your money. Give it to me. A coach can't do that. A coach is very good. And I've worked with some really brilliant coaches who have also run the organization and their satisfaction levels are different, or they may not understand programming and activation, and that, yes, your players have to go to the hospital this week. I I need three players. And and it's gonna be an hour or two hours, I need them. Um, Recently, in the pro league, there was a team that had their athletic trainers supplied for free by the title sponsor. The team was not so successful of late, and the coach 
said, you know what, I don't like these athletic trainers because they're not certified by my experience at a particular level. I, just get, I don't want them. I'm bringing in my own athletic trainers. They lost their title sponsor in a matter of days. Um, and it's, it's that level of understanding. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that that was a direct result of that move by that coach. All I'm saying is, here's the timeline. If I were there, that may not have happened, or we would have solved it a little bit differently. The athletic trainers are wearing the brand during the game, and, and that brand and that, and that concept that they're there for the club and the team and their kids all the time, and now they're gone. That's the refrigerator magnet that was just taken off by the title sponsor. And, they, and that particular team had a scramble short-term to find a new title sponsor. And this is a, one of the pro teams in the NWSL. What you're talking about so relates to the first phrase I said to you about the role you do. You're the glue because you, you explain that in that example. You have the business side of a club and then you've got the coaching side. And I want to finish on an inspirational question. And I haven't done this one before, but I think it will be quite interesting to hear your response. If you had to speak to a younger self, let's say 25 years ago, with regards to the role of being that glue, what career guidance would you give to yourself? You're making the right decisions. Okay, I'm not rich. I'm fine. I'm fine. I, I, I find that you know, my life has been absolutely wonderful cheering for women on the field and the, and the game I love. Yeah, I love the game. I, I played it for 35 years. Uh, I limp a little bit today because of it. But I was also a goalkeeper for most of that time, so I'm a little bit nuts. I, I would never change that. Uh, I've stayed fit and healthy, and people don't think I'm as old as I am because, and I, I credit football, and I, I, I credit my, you know, the people around me. You know, my my life has been good, so I, I would I would probably tell him don't be so shy in the beginning, um, and 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 follow your dreams and and do what you love. And and what I tell kids now is, if you're doing what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Um, I would also uh, uh, tell them that uh, you know, li- li- you listen to your heart, um, go with what you like. And I've I've been lucky in, in that um, I've, I've I've always done that. I've always had choices, and I tell this to I told this to my daughter and my my wife and I just said this uh, to her when she was a little girl. It says, stay in school, study your algebra, even though you don't think you'll need it. Uh, by the way, t- algebra teaches you adaptive reasoning, so look that up. Okay. I will do, Jim. Look, out of interest, how could people connect with you on social media if they can? Is there an avenue where people can, like students, can reach out in any way? Okay, certainly. I'm on LinkedIn. That's 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 the best thing. You know, just look up James Gooley, G O O L E Y, on LinkedIn. That is great. To all the listeners listening in, that LinkedIn link will be on my website relating to this blog post. Jim, it's been such a pleasure. I look forward to learning more from you with regards to this trip in Athens. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Ed. What a really interesting sports career journey from Jim. There's so much I really enjoyed from that podcast chat. Firstly, with regards to today's podcast topic, I hope now you've got a better understanding how sponsorship is applied in football clubs and finding that win-win scenario for the brand, for the audience, which is the fans and the club. And with regards to actually Jim's journey, I hope you've also learned that sales is such an important tool 
when applying yourself in the football industry in that club environment, a lot of it comes down to sales and understanding that process. And when you understand that sales is part of the football industry, part of the sports industry, the better understanding you'll have with regards to your career development. And that just doesn't mean just working in sponsorship. That's any part of the sports or football industry. If you can understand how to sell yourself and solving somebody's problems and needs, the more likely you're going to get opportunities in the sports and football industry. So look, I really do hope you've enjoyed this podcast chat as much as I have. Really apply Jim's career guidance tips. He's had a wealth of knowledge, wealth of experience in the football industry. So really take on board what he says and apply it to your sports career journey today and make it happen. Now, as always, at the end of each podcast chat, I like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker. Jim said, don't be shy at the beginning of your career. Follow your dreams, but most importantly, make the right decisions relating to you and only focus on the work you love to do as well. 